arranging for our meal today. Thank you, Vicki. And uh, I'm glad that you're here. We are in Genesis chapter 15. And so in a moment we'll begin with verse 1 as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. And uh, I'm glad to see you. Hope everything is well with you and at your household. I'm, I'm standing next to a very famous man today, <laughs> Dr. George Masacchio. If uh, He just returned from Uganda with a big group from the church that went to Uganda. So uh, he is featured very prominently on YouTube. So I think if you, you would enjoy seeing it, if, to see a side of George that you probably haven't seen before. So, so I'll probably let it go at that. But uh, I'm glad you're back, George. Good to see you. Glad everybody's here. So let's bow for prayer. Uh, Tex and Judy are back from Panama. Uh, I, I think uh, Sunday night's report was just absolutely fantastic. All of us, all of us. Jesse and Karen are going Friday to Moldova, along with some others from our church. So, uh, oh, Mike, Mike's back. Hey, Mike, where have you been hiding? You usually sit over here, so when I walk by with my food, you're there. But uh, oh, okay. Well, welcome back. He was on the Uganda trip. Also, very good. All right, I may have missed somebody, but not intentionally, so let's pray. Father, thank you for this good day that you've given us. It's a beautiful day. Thank you for the delicious food. Use it to strengthen our bodies. Bless our time together in the book of Genesis, that it will be a profitable time for us. We love you. We thank you so much for Jesus, our precious Savior and Lord. We thank you for the precious Word of God and the fact that we live in a place where we can not only have a Bible, but multiple Bibles, and without fear, we can read it any time that we choose. And so we are very, very thankful for the freedom that we enjoy. So I pray today that you'll bless our time together. May your name be glorified in all we do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, we are looking at Genesis chapter 15, and you'll see that I have divided the text into two sections, Faith and Righteousness covers verses 1 through 6, and then uh, verses 7 through the end of the chapter, God's covenant with Abram. So we did a little introductory work last week in the, to the chapter, so I don't want to go back over that. What I'd like to do is just start by reading verses 1 through 6, and then we'll, uh, we'll dissect them a little bit uh, as we move forward. So, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After this... The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. If we didn't know better, we would think that Abram was being a little uh, edgy here, maybe even a little bit impudent. Um, 
Well, in fact, I would say that is exactly what he's doing. He's got it bottled up inside, and so the Lord made the first move in speaking to him, so he's going to just speak back. And he does so. So does God get mad? No, he doesn't. Then the Lord, word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, that is Eliezer of Damascus, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Now, God could have said, this is the fourth time that I've told you this. <laughs> but God is gracious and doesn't remind Abram of that. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it. Credited, I don't know why I always have trouble with that word. He credited it to him as righteousness. Okay, let's pause there. In verse 1, God speaks. God sees the heart of Abram as he sees the heart of all people. And perhaps Abram is feeling some doubt. Well, it'll take you a question about that based on what he says next. God's promises have not yet been fulfilled. Abram may also be a, a bit fearful because of uh, the, the warfare that he had just been involved in back in chapter 14. And maybe there's some thought that his enemies are going to regroup, rearm, and come back uh, after him. We, we don't know. But the primary thing that Abram seems concerned about in these verses is that God has not yet, at least in Abram's way of thinking, God has not yet kept his promise to him. So it says in that first verse that the Lord speaks and he speaks in a vision. Now, when we find visions in Scripture, the visions come for a purpose, and the purpose is communicating the Word of God. So that's what we find. This vision is intended to communicate the word of God. So God himself speaks. And God says to Abram, fear not. Now, how many times in the Bible does God, Jesus, an angel, a messenger, say those words? Don't be afraid. Fear not. We find them over and over and over again. So fear not. Your reward is great. Abram, for being faithful. Fear not. You don't have to be afraid of anything. And I'm going to keep the promise that I've made. Maybe God, in looking into Abram's heart, sees the fear that Abram has not yet voiced. However, beginning with verse 2, Abram voices it. He responds in verses 2 and 3. And I think don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to look at that and say, oh, Abram's unhappy. Um, he is unhappy. He addresses God respectfully. He calls him Sovereign Lord, or I think some translations say Lord God. So he's respectful. But what he says after addressing the Lord borders on uh, disrespect. He just blurts out what he's thinking. What he's feeling. Now, the thing that encourages me about all of this is uh, I, the biblical characters are so human. Uh, 
you and I feel the things they felt, and we may react often the way they reacted, and and it just shows us that Abram is human, Noah was is human, Moses is human. You look at the New Testament, Paul, Peter, really, especially Peter, uh, James, John, they're all men of flesh just like we are. So that, that encourages my heart. Uh, I hope it encourages yours to see how biblical characters can sin, and yet God forgives and uses them. It's remarkable. And that's what he's done with us. So, Abraham just blurts out what he's thinking. And, and he says, your promise is not fulfilled. And the implication is that Sarai and I are not getting any younger. And uh, I have servants who have children, but I don't have any. And they're all around me, all these little kids, all around me. So I guess my inheritance that you promised will go to one of my servants. And why he picked Eliezer of Damascus, I don't know. Maybe he was nearby. But he says, I guess my servant Eliezer of Damascus is going to be the inheritor. Maybe he was the high-ranking servant. I, I, you know, Maybe that's why he picked him. But I guess you're not going to keep your promise to me, so the promise goes to Eliezer of Damascus. Well, God responds with a prompt, with an assurance in verses 4 and 5. He responds tenderly and lovingly. Eliezer will not be your heir. Um, this is the fourth time God's spoken to Abram about this. I will keep the promise that I've made to you. Have faith. Have faith. You will have a son will be your own flesh and blood. You and Sarah will have a male child, and I will keep my promise. And in verse 5, he says, look up. Again, done this before, but look up. Can you count the stars? Of course not. Nobody can. Well, your offspring are going to be like the stars in the sky. And, you know, earlier he had said like the sand of the sea. So he makes that promise. Now what happens? Well, verse 6 is very different than verse 2 and 3, isn't it? Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. Abram believes he has faith, and God credit, gives him credit for righteousness. Now, here is the thing we want to remember. God looks into the heart of Abraham. And this time, he sees something different. He sees not doubt, but he sees faith. And Abram believes that God is going to keep the promise that he made. You and Sarah will have a male child. And it is through him, through your seed, through this child, that I will bless the world. Now, again... Ultimately, the world is blessed through the seed of Abraham in the person of Christ, Jesus. So, God says, by way of assurance, I'm going to keep my word. And Abram 
this time believes and God bestows righteousness, his righteousness upon Abram. You know that or you know that when we give our lives to Christ, God looks at us and says, You are what? Forgiven, but you are righteous. He gives his righteousness to us. Exactly what he's saying to Abram. So we have a a foreshadowing, as it were, of what God does for us in Jesus. Our faith is credited to us as righteousness. So this sixth verse, if, if you underline in your Bible with a highlighter, a pen, or a pencil, or whatever you do, uh, verse 6 needs to be one of those highlighted verses. That is one of the most important verses in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed. God looked into his heart. Abram doesn't say anything in verse 5. But God looks in his heart and he knows. Abram believes that I will keep the promise. Now, for you and me, whatever God says that he will do in his word, he will do. You can count on it. Whatever promises he makes in this scripture, he will keep every single one of them. So every promise he's made to you, you can count on it. It will happen. God's timing is perfect, known only to him, but it will happen. And the promise that he made to all of us for the now, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. You, you can count on it. You don't have to wake up tomorrow saying, I, I don't think God remembers me anymore. I don't think he knows where I am. I think he's lost track of me. No, he hasn't. Now, I can't explain why you may be going through whatever it is that would cause you to think that or feel that. But what I can say is the word of God is true. And regardless of what it is, he has a plan and a purpose. And he is with you and will continue to be with you. And you can count on it. Now we come to verse 7, and we find God's covenant with Abram. And again, uh, as far as the unfolding of Scripture is concerned, this is a very, very significant passage of Scripture. So I just want to read the whole thing. We're going to go 7 to 21, and then go back and talk about it. He also said to him, God's still speaking to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Now, in a minute, when we come back to this, I'm going to tell you that verse 8 is not like verse 2 and 3. There's a difference. Verse 2 and 3, Abram borders on the impudent. Verse, verse 8, not so. This is a, a innocent, inquiring question. Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. They're little, he's going to put them opposite each other. 
Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. And we'll stop there. So, verse 5, God makes a promise. Verse 6, Abram now believes. God sees the heart so we can know for certain Abram believes. And God credited it to him as righteousness, and the righteousness is God's doing. So, God's promise to Abram, we discover, we've already could have noticed this, but surely now we do, it's in two parts. The promise is people and a land. A people and a land. That's the promise that he makes to Abram. Now that Abram believes about a people, God goes to work at Abram's heart concerning the land. In verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out. Does that have a familiarity to it? I am the Lord who brought you out. We will hear that again, not in Genesis, but if we were to go through Exodus next, we'll hear that. And where do we hear it? Who does God say that to? Moses. Moses. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So here God says it, there God says it, and these are two of the most formative events in the history of the Jewish people. The fact that Abram was brought out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, and then, of course, that the Israelites were brought out of slavery in Egypt. Both are sovereign acts of salvation on the part of God for his people, his plan, and his purpose. So now Abram in verse 8 asks, how? Uh, how's, how can I be sure? How's all this going to happen? It was not a question of doubt, like back in verses 2 and 3, but a question from a believing heart. And God knows the heart. A similar question in Luke chapter 1 was asked by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And uh, his question caused God to do something to Zechariah. Do you remember what it was? Made him dumb. Mute. Mute. Dumb, that's a bad word because you might think. Made him mute. God knows the heart difference between Zechariah's question and Abram's question. So God begins to unfold 
the covenant that he's going to make with Abram, through which he will bless the world. And in verses 9, 10, and 11, we see the covenant preparation. Covenant preparation. Uh, there is a divine order given by God and an obedient response on the part of Abraham. Or Abram. Abram understood what God was doing. We read this and sound extraordinarily strange to us. But in the Middle Eastern world of that day, this custom was common for two parties to solemnize a promise or a covenant that they were making with, with one another. The two parties would line up the carcass of an animal, animals, and, and have a pathway in between them. And then they would stand side by side and walk down the pathway from one end to the other. And this ceremony dramatized a self-imposed curse that should either covenanting party break the, the pledge, then they could expect to become like the severed animals. They could expect to be sundered apart like the severed animals. If I break my word, may I become like this animal that is to the side of the path. That was the symbolic picture. So you want to go into a business deal uh, with, well, I'll pick on my friends Bill and George here at the front. They decide to go into a business arrangement. And so in that day, they would have solemnized it, made it. A binding covenant by taking an animal and cutting it asunder, forming a pathway, maybe kind of like between the free throw line here and the basketball court. And George and Bill would stand beside each other and look at each other and say, are you ready? And both would say, we're ready. And they would walk between the animals, one end to the other. And when they did that, they were saying... Bill to George, George, I promise to keep my word. George to Bill, Bill, I promise to keep my word. That seems a little strange to us, doesn't it? But it's not strange at all to the, to the in, in Middle Eastern culture of that day. And here we have five distinct animals, all of which, if you caught the animals as you read the names of them, all of which would become standard sacrifices when the Mosaic Covenant was instituted in many years to come. But these animals are not sacrificed. They are simply slain, divided, and laid out with the birds not being divided and one laid out opposite the other. There's no altar. There's no fire. Their symbolic purpose was to represent God's people, God was to represent God's covenant people in much the same way these animals would represent them before God in the future sacrificial system. Now here's a key. Abram obeys, gets it all ready, kills them, lines them up, forms the covenant pathway for them or the center aisle, or whatever name you want to give it, then while waiting on further instruction from God, 
Abram still not knowing what, what's God going to do next. Am I going to walk beside God down the center of this path? I mean, that would have been his expectation. We're going to walk together down the center. How, how am I going to walk with God down the center of this covenant pathway? Night came. Abram is waiting for God's instruction. And the Bible says he falls into a deep sleep. He's exhausted from everything that's happened. And a terrifying darkness comes upon him in his sleep. Because Yahweh is present. God is there. And so there is a deep restlessness, darkness in the sleep of Abram. And then comes the electric moment. In verses 12 through 16, we, we read that God, we read the, the detail uh, of, of, the, of the covenant that God makes with Abram. God's promise was described in sequence. How, to whom, when, and why. Look again at verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. Thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said. So the Lord's going to speak. After he speaks, he's going to ratify the covenant. And we've already read how that happened. What is it that Abram perhaps did not expect in the ratification of the covenant? You know what you know what it would have been that he might would have expected? God does it alone. He doesn't say to Abram, Come walk with me down the down the aisle. Abram remains where he is. God alone walks the path. An unconditional covenant on the part of God. I will keep this promise to you. But I'm jumping ahead. So we see a, a how, a to whom, a when, and a why in verses 12 through 16. What is the how? The means by which Abram's descendants would come to possess the land would be through a terrible ordeal. 400 years in slavery. In a country whose name is unspoken at this point, but we know that country to be Egypt. In verse 13, we find a stunning, dark promise. Then the Lord said, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. That they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So there is uh, a stunning dark promise. But Egypt will be punished. And how did that happen? Well, you remember the night the death angel came and passed over the land. Eldest child's life was taken. The Israelites left. And the scripture says that the Egyptians gave them so much stuff to just get out and go. That it was as if Israel had plundered Egypt. So there's a shocking dream for Abram. There's the how. 
400 years in Egypt, then deliverance, and then the occupation of the land that I'm promising you. So to whom is the promise made? Verse 15, you, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. So what is Abram just now finding out that he had not known before? You won't be here, Abram, for the possessing of the land. You'll be gone. But Abram, it's okay. Because you're going to go to the place of shalom. You're going to go to the place of peace. You're going to be with me. I've got it all reserved for you. I've got it all prepared for you. So the aging patriarch is given the, the, the calm certainty that he will know shalom. He will know peace. Ultimately, Abram's gaze will turn to the city whose architect and builder is God. Same city we're looking at. So that is to whom the promise is made. Then the when and the why, 400 years, the why, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now we say, I'm going to scratch my head because that's what I do when I don't understand something. So I'm going to scratch my head. God is revealing to Abram that he is patient beyond human calculation. Paul knew that. You remember uh, Paul saying in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Let that sink in for a minute. God's kindness, God's patience, God's forbearance is intended to lead you to repentance. Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now the Amorites, and that will have to finish. The Amorites, the inhabitants of Canaan, the land that has been promised to Abram, to his descendants, the Amorites will become, over this period of time, more and more and more wicked and wretched. Gods and goddesses of the Amorites were all about illicit sex, Incest, adultery, child sacrifice, sexual perversion, and bestiality. And they grew worse and worse and worse and worse in the passing of time. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24, God warns his people, Do not defile yourselves in any way, any of these ways, and he had just listed the things that I just listed, in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Amorites. The Amorites reached the point of no return, and God unleashed an invasion led by Joshua. And Joshua's invasion was an act of justice, not an act of aggression, according to Derek Kidner, who's 
one of the foremost writers in the Old Testament. The history of the world is under the moral governance of God. The displacement of the Amorites by Israel was not simply the result of divine favoritism. Although, if God wants to be have favorites, God's allowed to do that. But it's not just an act of divine favoritism. The Amorites had long flaunted God's moral law. And the emphasis in this past passage is on the patience of God. But in the passing of time, the Amorites reached the fullness of their wickedness and God acted, gave the land, delivered the land into the hands of the children of Israel. So Abram learns that suffering is going to precede glory, that he's going to die in peace, but that God's great promise to him would ultimately be fulfilled on the other side of the grave to him personally and with the land to his descendants. Now, We've got to stop there because I've already gone way past time. But we haven't finished with verses 6, 7 through 21. We'll do that next week. The land covenant is going to be ratified because God's going to walk the path between the animals. And we'll see how he symbolic, well not symbolically, but in reality how he does that in, in verses 17 through 21. Okay, you with me? Everybody with me? All right, after that, we go to chapter 16. We're introduced to Hagar and ultimately to Ishmael. And the world's been dealing with Ishmael and Isaac ever since then, still to this day. Oh my, okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your incredible word. Thank you for the gift of righteousness that you give to us. When we become a follower of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for crediting us with righteousness because of our faith in you. Bless us as we go to this from this place today. May your word be so real and genuine to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you.